Welcome to the Late Fragments podcast. In this episode, I'll be talking politics, money, sex and religion with the Reverend Jonathan Aitken. Aitken has had one of the most colourful careers in British public life. A former Tory MP who in 1999 served a seven-month prison sentence for perjuring himself during a libel case, Aitken spent many years labouring under the weight of a media campaign to discredit him. Now 80, Aitken's life is a world away from the sleazy tabloid headlines of his middle years. An ordained member of the Church of England, the recently widowed chaplain of Pentonville Prison devotes much of his time to helping bring spiritual relief into the lives of those who, just like him, have found themselves locked away from the world. He's the author of 16 books, the patron of Prison Fellowship International, and the co-founder of the Chance to Change Foundation, which aims to promote the care, resettlement and rehabilitation of offenders at HMP Pentonville. He says, It was only when I lost the whole world of my previous life that I found my own soul in a new life. I hope you enjoy listening. We're going to start, if that's okay, with politics. I'd like to talk about your father, who I believe was a politician before you were. Yes, my father was a rather unlikely politician. First of all, he wasn't British, even though he sat in the British House of Commons. <coughs> he was a Canadian, <coughs> and in 1938, he had never been out of Canada in his life. But like many Canadians of his generation, he thought of Britain as the mother country. And my father was a bit of a boy scout uh, all his life, but when he was a young man, his boy scoutism took him into being a very active member of the Territorial Army in Canada, and a particular regiment called the Toronto Scottish Highlanders, who went around in kilts. In 1938, my father read in a Toronto newspaper that the mother country, which is how he thought of us, was in danger for attack by Germany and it was in danger of losing any such war because of a shortage of pilots. So my father, Boy Scout as he was, um, immediately wrote to the Air Ministry in London saying, I'm a qualified pilot, I'm part of the Empire, would you like me to uh, come and join you? And somebody wrote back from the Air Ministry and said, well if you'd like to come over we'll look at you. He came over paying his own fare on a ship. And when he got to the Air Ministry, he produced his documents, which apparently in pilot terms were quite impressive. He'd done everything he could do. And they then said to him, how old are you? And he said, 31, sir. The man at the Air Ministry said, have you brought your birth certificate? And he said, yes, sir. And the wing commander, whoever he was, said, burn it at once. So he shoved it into the flames. And the reason for that, he was over the age limit for being uh, an RAF fighter pilot. But having burnt his um, um, birth certificate, he was immediately enrolled. Uh, but anyway, he um, uh, did join the RAF, and then he was very, very badly burnt after being shot down. He was one of the famous plastic surgeon Archie McIndoe's first guinea pigs. My father told me he thought he'd had 148 operations on anaesthetics in his life, having, most of them having his face re-stitched together. 
Um, by the time I really focused on him and really knew him, he was um, actually very well rebuilt. He was, you could see, just he'd had plastic surgery, but you wouldn't sort of see it on the other side of a room at a cocktail party or even quite close up. Uh, anyway, after the war, there was a feeling in the country generally, and I think in the Conservative Party particularly, that these young sons of the empire, as they were known, should, when possible, have seats in the Mother of Parliaments. And my father was one of about 20 young Canadians, Australians, New Zealanders, South Africans who became British MPs. I was really rather fascinated at a young age by his parliamentary life, which consisted largely of going out into the rural villages of West Suffolk and um, talking with farmers about pigs or doing a wine and cheese party in some small hamlet. But um, I just got interested at an early age in politics through him. Before your life, your life changed dramatically, and we'll come on to that. Uh, you were tipped at one point to be the next Tory Prime Minister. How corrupting, ultimately, is power? First of all, if you got together all the... MPs who at one time or another had been tipped as a Conservative uh, Prime Minister, you'd need a ballroom, not a small um, cubbyhole to fit them all in. I was tipped as a future Prime Minister, but I actually never took it that seriously for one simple reason. I had been close enough to power at an early age. I worked for my godfather, Selwyn Lloyd, on, and was working on the day he was sacked from uh, being Chancellor of the Exchequer, I knew enough that actually once you get to the very top, uh, it's a game of chance, not a game of skill. I, I think there is part of the trappings of power which are attractive, but I don't think that went to my head at all. People who want to be interesting in politics are people who do something. Uh, people who want to just be famous and be important or be saluted as they come down steps of their um, private RAF jet, uh, they just want to be somebody. Uh, and that wasn't of particular interest to me. I didn't say it wasn't somehow flattered being somebody, but on the whole not. It was doing something which mattered to me. Politicians, I'm sure you'll agree, should of course be scrutinised by the public, but I think you endured more than your fair share. How do you look back now on that time where you were unwittingly turned into a sort of national villain? I don't think it was really quite as bad as that, but certainly one particular newspaper, The Guardian, went for me. Um, and I think one of the reasons they went for me, um, at the time I thought it was all rather personal, maybe for some journalists it was, but actually... It was really to do with the temper of the times. You know, speed the wicked Tories on their way out was a, a, um, a feeling of many journalists, and particularly journalists on left of centre papers. Um, why not? They were allowed to do that. Um, but they, um, I think it was, um, I was just a convenient um, uh, sort of hate figure at the time. I was angry uh, and um, thought it was all very unfair 
a lot of rubbish was said, but on the other hand, um, one particularly true thing was said, which is I had told a lie about a hotel bill. The old nursery rhyme goes, oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. Uh, so, and that's exactly what happened. And then I stuck to the lie instead of retreating from the lie. I was caught lying and I paid a heavy price for that. You were sentenced to 18 months in prison in 1999 and you've said before, I was lucky, I managed to get along with my fellow prisoners very quickly. That's what politicians do when they're getting votes. <laughs> well, slightly tongue-in-cheek remark, but some truth in it. Um, suddenly, I was catapulted by the court but um, uh, into a completely negative, hostile environment. What do you do? <laughs> you try and survive. And my survival mechanism was A, to keep my head down, B, to be as agreeable as I could be to uh, anybody um, who was passing by, to handle difficult situations as best I could. Quite early on, I was standing around on the wings in Belmarsh doing nothing, as you do most of the time in prison, and a young prisoner came up to me and said, um, in a conspiratorial whisper, hey, I've got a problem, could you help me? And he said, my problem is I've had a letter from my brief, but I can't read it, could you read it to me? So I said, sure. And I read him this letter, which was from his sister, enclosing one from the Lambeth Council, telling him he was going to be evicted from his council flat in Lambeth for non-payment of rent, along with his uh, wife and small child. And as I gave him this news, he went up the wall with uh, sort of anger and hysteria, and the only coherent uh, noise out of all the effings and blindings he was doing was, what shall I do? What shall I do? My kid's going to be on the street. What shall I do? As it happens, considering we were both uh, prisoners in Belmarsh, uh, he couldn't have found easily a more expert source of authority to answer this question because I had been doing eviction cases for 25 years in my constituency surgeries as an MP, so I knew all the little wrinkles which can postpone eviction of one kind or another. So I told him all this, and he was delighted. And I said, you know, if you, and this is what I do. And I said, all you have to do is write that down, send it back to your solicitor or to the Lambeth Council, and you won't be evicted quickly, I can assure you. I said, oh, that's brilliant, brilliant. And then he said, look, I've got another problem. I don't do no writing, nor no reading, neither. Uh, could you write it for me? So I said, sure. So I wrote a letter of appeal. And he was kind enough to say it was rather good. So I read it back to him. And he said, and he then signed it. And then he did something which was most unexpected. Instead of putting this letter into the post box or putting it in his pocket, he suddenly transformed himself into a sort of 18th century town crier. And holding the letter aloft, he went down the wing, shouting at the top of his voice, Hey guys, this MP geezer of ours, he's got fantastic joined up writing. <laughs> Uh, and um, so this commercial of my graphological schools fell on the ears of a very receptive audience because, and it's a little-known fact except prison insiders, roughly speaking, a third of all prisoners in a big London jail cannot read or write to an adequate standard. And um, 
So, as a result of it being known, thanks to the town crier, that there was a fellow prisoner who might be willing to help you with your letters, from that moment on, it was a queue every single night of my sentence of people wanting letters written to them and read to them, often on the most intimate subjects imaginable. And this, first of all, became a butt of a certain amount of good-natured prison humour. I remember one old lag saying to me, he said, oh, Johnno, so do you realise with all this uh, letter-writing business of yours, you is making a fantastic impact on the girls of Brixton. <laughs> uh, they can't believe the sudden improvement in the love letters they're getting from this place. Um, be that as it may, um, I was making some friends, and that sort of transformed my status from instead of being that evil Tory cabinet minister, I was, oh, well, he's not a bad bloke. He helped me with my letter to my uh, girlfriend, whatever it was. And I then became uh, sort of part of the kind of prison scenery as an accepted figure rather than as a hate figure. Did it make it less unbearable being there? Or was it not unbearable in itself anyway? It wasn't that unbearable. It wasn't easy. It was uncomfortable. It was um, fairly miserable. In terms of the actual physical side of it all, um, I often say that I think uh, my first uh, days in HMP Eton were rather harder than my first days in HMP Belmarsh. Um, so you you cope, you know, and, and uh, I did. Do you despair a little bit at the state of the prisons in our country? Well, I'd certainly like to see a lot of things reformed, but no, I don't. Actually, our prisons are, all things considered, pretty decent and pretty civilised. We won't get a lot of people saying that, but I know it to be true, especially when I compare it to things like American prisons. Or um, Now, um, why is it decent? Well, it's really decent thanks to the staff who are underestimated. In some ways, I think... Prison officers are in the most difficult frontline jobs way more often than even police officers or armed forces officers in this as a war. Because every day there are incidents of people, sometimes mentally ill people, kicking off, making trouble, fighting, or trying to commit suicide, or dramas of one kind or another. I think that there are too many people go to prison who shouldn't go to prison if we had good alternatives. We have some alternatives, um, but for example, the number of people doing drug-influenced crimes, I really think we could do much better in treating some of these conditions than imprisoning people from the conditions. Um, and um, I'm very interested in myself in trying to help people who are on drugs get off drugs and get off crime. And you have many failures, but occasionally when you have successes, it's a tremendous joy. I've been mentoring a young man at the moment who's achieved stopping drugs, getting out of prison, getting into work, succeeding, getting a good job and qualifying, now getting married in a few weeks' time and I'm doing the wedding. Uh, and, and that's a great joy when that all works, but it usually doesn't.
How did your time in prison alter your attitude to money? Well, I had none of it, which is one way of altering your attitude. I was actually bankrupt. Um, and um, some people think bankruptcy is absolutely devastating. I always thought this is something I'll come out of one day, I'll earn my living again. I don't know quite how. And my children just asked me, how are you going to earn your living again, Dad? And I said, well, if nothing else, I'll be a, a minicab driver because I know a lot of Arabs, I know the tips are enormous, and I bet you I'll get a few. And my children used to shriek because I said, you always get lost even when you're driving <laughs> Westminster, Victoria, you get lost on earth. Okay, I was going to tip you. So, um, but um, I've always been, I think, someone who sees life through the glass half full rather than through the glass half empty. And um, even in my worst moments in Delmarsh Prison, I always thought life is going to go on. I'm not going to be here forever. I'm going to do something after I come out, which would be interesting. There is a, a wonderful story in your book about you went to Oxford to study theology and um, your son William by then was a hungry teenager, I think. And there's a story about you having only £20 in your pocket. Well, first of all, just going back a bit, it was a rather odd but brave decision to go from prison to the one place in Britain which had worse food than a prison and more uncomfortable beds than a prison. And this was an Anglican theological college called Wycliffe Hall, Oxford. I was living on a, um, a bankrupt's weekly allowance. It was, if I remember correctly, it was £200 a week. Actually, that made me just about the richest person in the Wycliffe Hall theology students. So it wasn't quite as... I could afford to buy a round of drinks. But um, even so, there were pressures. Um, and um, there was one particular moment when... Um, it wasn't just the only weekend when money was a bit short at the end of the month or it was and um, my son was coming uh, and I knew that he had a gargantuan appetite um, you know, sort of six sausages for breakfast this kind of thing as small boys do and so I um, uh, tried to borrow uh, sort of 20 quid off somebody and said you know what you should do you should go to the supermarket after midnight and they sell the um <laughs> all the produce at a third of the price, which is something I had not known before. Anyway, off I go to the supermarket. Sure enough, I'm able to buy treble the amount of um, uh, food for my son's visit at a very low price and still have change in my pocket. And I remember just laughing as I came away. <laughs> um, you know, the days when I used to go to Harry's Bar or Mark's Club for lunch and so on. And now I was, but, but I was amused greatly that I had sort of, as were, outwitted the difficulty by going to the supermarket after midnight. Maybe many people know they can do that, but I didn't. And it was just, to me, another sort of little move in the game of snakes and ladders that you learn how to buy cheap but perfectly eatable food. How do you view the value of money? What does... Well, I don't in any way decry its importance. In the Bible, one of the most misquoted verses is, money is the root of all evil. That's not what the Bible says. It says, love of money is the root of all evil. And 
I have met many people in my life, uh, like a character in Henry Fielding's novel, Tom Jones, who think that money is so important, it's the only subject in life which needs to be thought about or conversed about. I think I was ever like that. Um, I think um, everybody has to cut their coat according to their cloth, <clears throat> and it's nice to have enough money to uh, be able to go to the uh, theatre and dinner afterwards, and I would like to do that, but on the whole, I, even now, I can't afford to do that. Uh, but I can still afford a perfectly reasonable, um, moderate lifestyle. And so money is not at all top of my agenda. Um, I, I count my blessings rather than count my money. As a younger man, I believe that you had a, a colourful private life. How much have your relationships with women affected the direction of your life, would you say? Well, it's true that probably, um, like many young men, I had a, um, a rather too uh, mouvementé um, uh, private life, too many relationships. Um, and um, it's no use regretting that it happened, but um, I hope I wasn't unkind too often to anybody, but I probably was sometimes. Um, but the good thing about it was that um, when the trips were down and marriage came into it, um, then, um, you know, love was really there. And I feel blessed by both my wives. Um, my first wife is still alive and I have a good relationship with her. Um, and Elizabeth, who's only died a year ago, um, we were very close to each other for reasons of faith as well as reasons of all the usual reasons people love each other, um, emotionally and um, physically. And in her case, for the last six years or so of her life, she'd had a brain hemorrhage. And she was um, uh, we were, we were very close in terms of tactility, but um, she was just not well enough to um, be as kind of the kind of hot lady she was when she was younger. I think I learned with Elizabeth that it's possible to uh, love somebody when they're vulnerable just as strongly and passionately as you can love somebody when they are um, exciting and sexually thrilling. You must miss her terribly. I do. Um, I certainly do. And um, But um, my grief has sort of morphed into gratitude. I... Uh, commune with her rather a lot in prayer and also because she's uh, buried just about um, five minutes walk from where I live so I, I often go jogging in the Brompton Cemetery and pause by her grave so I feel close to her still um, and um, I you know I, the reason I, of course I was extremely upset when she died um, although it was quite predictable, she was, she was very, very ill for a long time. Um, but I've always been absolutely, utterly confident that we'll meet again. Um, so at a um, funeral, I, I gave a tribute, quite a high-risk endeavour. Um, but um, the last words were au revoir. Um, and, and I always believe that my faith teaches that we'll be reunited one day. Can I take you back to when you were four years old and you had TB mm. and 
you were admitted to a nursing hospital in Dublin. No, what happened was that I was born in Dublin for reasons to do with the Second World War. My father had been shot down as a fire department was very badly burned in the hospital. My mother was extremely busy working for what is now called the WRVS. The R hadn't been added in those days, but she was doing meals and wheels. And, and when I came along, what did my mother do? She went back to mum and dad to have the baby. Mum and dad, or her father, happened to be what would now be called the British Ambassador in Dublin. And um, I then was really parked with my grandparents uh, for the first three or four years of my life. But I caught TB uh, from a nanny or a nurse. TB was very, very prevalent in Ireland uh, right up till the 50s. Anyway, I caught TB, but nobody noticed in a sort of busy ambassadorial house run by grandparents. I was coughing a bit, and it was, oh, Jonathan's a bit seedy, isn't he? He seems to Chloe cough which has lasted a long time. But no one really thought it was... And by the time it was diagnosed, my TB had gone a very long way. It had gone into both lungs and into my legs and the bones, which is very bad news. And so my poor... Um, panicky parents had to deal with sort of an advanced TV and I was taken to TB specialists on both sides of the Irish Sea and um, with one exception the uh, diagnosis could hardly have been more pessimistic uh, most people said I'm sorry this child can't live some would say the child might live but he'll never walk um, the only exception to this was um, an Irish doctor who ran his own hospital, now a rather famous hospital, called Kappa Hospital, just as a Dublin. But he was the TB specialist and an orthopaedic specialist of the day. And he said, if this little boy comes to, into my hospital, um, we will, I think, have a very good chance of him being totally cured. But he'll have to be totally immobilised for two or three years. Disabled children don't realise they're disabled. They think it's normal. And I was in the hospital, lots of other people in iron lungs. Or tea. And um, the unlucky ones died. We were often wheeling the beds around and, uh, because little Seamus had passed away in the night. In the middle of all this, I met a remarkable nun who was called Sister Mary Finbar. Um, uh, she um, very much took me under her wing. I mean, she was a lot of children, but I think she enjoyed having quite a bright little boy who was keen to learn. And she taught me everything. I mean, how to read, how to do maths. I mean, on a contraption beyond belief. something called the magic lantern, which was a very, very ancient sort of um, kind of projector, which projected onto the ceiling. And she was very spiritual, of course, but I was rather protected from that because my grandmother who was a somewhat bigoted Protestant could hardly bear the idea of me being nursed by Catholic nuns <laughs> this is absurd <laughs> but um, anyway so she was absolutely under strict instructions not to convert me not to proselytize me um, and, um, but one thing I do remember terribly well was that she almost every night used to kneel by my bed and I used to fall asleep 
and then I would wake up and still and I would still see her praying but she was a huge influence and she really was my sort of best friend and mother and grandmother and everything rolled into one do you think she saved your life with the power of her prayer? You yeah, maybe. Who knows? Very probably. Oh, I'm sorry you're upset. No. She was amazing. I'm happily upset. Mm. Very good memories of her. Mm. And there was something extraordinary which happened. Um, the I was came out of that hospital, aged. Um, uh, seven, um, and uh, never saw her again except once. Um, and it was like 15 years later, I was about 22 or 23, and I was in Belfast for the covering some part of the IRA war. And um, I suddenly had to drive. The, 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 I think all the Grove aircraft was airport was closing, and I. Suddenly, I could get a flight from Dublin, so I, on my expense allowance, I took a taxi from Belfast uh, down to Dublin with plenty of time to spare. And suddenly, we were um, uh, driving um, driving south, and suddenly I saw a notice board saying Kappa Hospital outside, getting close to Dublin. It's on the edge of Dublin, so I said, I'd like to go in. So in I went. And um, uh, I arrived and said, I, long time ago, I used to be patient here. Um, I'd love to see Sister Mary Fenbar. And they said, oh, I'm so sorry. It's uh, been impossible to see her because she's very, very ill. Um, and you won't be able to see her, but we'll go in and tell her that um, you're here. So I had a cup of coffee with the other nuns. And then suddenly... She arrived in the room. She was on two sticks, tottering. And all the nuns said, Oh, it's an hail, hail Mary, this is a miracle. She's never been able to walk. Suddenly she's got up. So down she sat. And we had a wonderful conversation. Full of old jokes and um, laughter and memories. And she said something again, which... Um, uh, she said occasionally when I was there, I said, oh, you've been saved for some great purpose. This wasn't very obvious what that purpose was at the time. Anyway, we had this wonderful conversation, uh, and there were sort of great jokes about my grandmother trying to stop me being converted, <laughs> and John Betjeman, who was my grandfather's press secretary, was sent in to make sure that I didn't become a Roman. <laughs> this kind of stuff. <laughs> laugh and laugh. And anyway, I, I knew she was probably getting near the end, but it wasn't because she was so animated. And these other nuns couldn't believe it. So anyway, we, we parted. And um, she and I said to the nuns, if she does die, be sure to give me a call. And they did, and it was about ten days later she died. You still lead a very busy, very active, very engaged life. Does your energy come from your faith? I think so. It's a gift from God. 
But I have got a lot of energy, relatively speaking. I see, um, and both physical energy. I still jog a bit, which is um, that's a very generous word. Verb jogging. I plod, but I'm fit and I enjoy life. I'd much rather burn out than rust out, and um, I have no interest in um, uh, going to the golf course and doing nothing much in the way of work or interesting things. I'm very fulfilled, very busy, and love what I do. So, of course, I'm happy, and I'm, I'm not rich, but I'm not poor, and I feel very content with, with life. Count my blessings. Thanks for listening to the Late Fragments podcast. If you're enjoying the episodes and would like to hear more, please subscribe on your podcast app of choice. In the next episode, I'll be talking to the Great British Bake Off presenter Prue Leith about infidelity, feminism, and becoming a late life national treasure. In the meantime, my thanks to Harry Dundas for the sound production and original score. Until next time, goodbye.